You can turn your Bibles with me to Psalm 73. We're going to be in Psalm 73 today. We had two instances this week where we were reminded about Christmas in July. Christmas in July. Have you ever heard of that before? First off, we were at the bank this week opening some new accounts. And wouldn't you know that bank was encouraging us to get a loan? Because evidently we deserve to give ourselves a a present uh, through a loan through the bank to celebrate Christmas in July. Why not, right? Uh, Secondly, we were working on our house this week. We We were able to... Uh, praise the Lord, we were blessed to be able to buy a house, and we closed on Thursday, we started working on it, and we had to take down some wallpaper. That's always easier than you think it's going to be, isn't it? No. And so the joke was made as we took the wallpaper down that maybe it'd be easier if we just went ahead and put, like, wrapping paper up or something like that, <laughs> and actually finish the job. And we could celebrate Christmas in July. Well, since it's the end of July... I thought we could take a little time to talk about New Year's resolutions, okay? New Year's resolutions can be a great way for us just to gauge what we value, the things that we desire the most. And in our nation, that's certainly true. I looked on the internet, and it told me, so you know it's right, because the internet told me, only 8% of people fulfill their New Year's resolutions. Only 8%. So it stands to reason that every year, the same resolutions ought to be the top four, right? Because nearly everybody failed the year before, so let's re-up for the next year. Here's the top four New Year's resolutions every year in the U.S. Number one, to stay fit or to get healthy. To stay fit or to get healthy. Uh, Number two, a close second in the same department probably, is to lose weight. Okay, so we want to be a slim and sleek people here in the U.S., Number three, to save more money, to save more money. And then number four for New Year's resolutions, to enjoy life to the fullest, (laughs) to enjoy life to the fullest. Now, I'm not sure how you do number three and number four in the same year. It's hard hard to save more money and enjoy life to the fullest in the same year, you'd think. Uh, Furthermore, to enjoy life to the fullest. Uh, What if you're at about 80% and you're nearing into November and you're thinking, oh, no, I'm not going to make it there, however you would measure that. Plus, if you were to actually enjoy life to the fullest this year, just know that every year for the rest of your life will not be as good as this year was, right? So you got to be careful with that New Year's resolution. Uh, as I said before, resolutions can be a good way for us to gauge what we value as a culture. And we have to ask this question, if these are the things that we think are going to make us happy, then why do so many struggle? Why do we fail year after year after year to keep up with our resolutions? If this is supposed to make us happy, why do we fail? Uh, What hurts our resolve with these resolutions? We're going to see in Psalm 73 today a man named Asaph who was having a hard time keeping up his resolve as well. So let's look to God's word to see what he says about these things. This is from Psalm 73. So let's pray together before we go into his word. Father, we do thank you that you've given us your word. Uh, thank you, Lord, that you made us uh, in such a way that we would hunger and thirst after you. And Lord, in this world, there are many things that look appetizing to us, that, that look like they're going to be uh, the very thing that we need to make us happy, to quench our thirst. Uh, but Lord, we know that you alone 
are what we need. And God, I pray that as we look into your word today, we would see that to be true. We would believe it to be true. And God, as we go from here, may we grow in making you our sanctuary and nothing else. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So right there at verse 1 in Psalm 73, it says, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now we'll see as we continue on here, this verse really serves us as an opening line, almost like a title. uh, Because Asaph doesn't see it that way in the next couple of verses. Verse 2 says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. You have to ask the question, well, why why did that happen? Why is that? And he answers, verse 3, because, for, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph's envy almost caused him to fall because he wanted what the proud and the wicked possessed. He saw what they had and it looked better to him. And and here's what they had. Verses 4 and 5 tell us it says that they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. And that sounds kind of weird. That's kind of opposite of our New Year's resolutions, isn't it? But back in that time and many uh, years through that, after that, uh, having extra weight about you meant you could afford it. Right? So being overweight meant that you were also probably rich. And so if their culture looked at our culture, you know, we think about this, we probably look like a very wealthy civilization. <laughs> and so to be, uh, and it uses the word in there, doesn't it? It uses the word fat. That was seen as an attractive thing because of what was behind it, which was a bunch of money. <laughs> okay? So they are, they have no pains until death. They are fat and sleek. Verse 5, they are not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. So these people, uh, the arrogant and the wicked, the Asaph is envious of, they have prosperity, they have good health, good looks, and a life of ease. No suffering, it appears. Isn't that what we all want? (laughs) When we're upset with life, it's often because things are hard. We want a life of ease, but hard is not bad. It's just hard. It is hard, amen? But hard is not bad. And as a Christian, God promises to make hard good. And we have that to look forward to. Okay? Therefore, because it seems as though the wicked arrogant are doing all of these wicked arrogant things and being rewarded with a life of ease and prosperity and good looks and good health... Verse 6 says, therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness, and their hearts overflow with follies. Uh, It says here that they, they flaunt themselves. They show off. They use others to their own benefit to, to give themselves pleasure and enjoyment. Remember, love is, is, and Christ showed us this in his death on the cross, is giving of myself for the benefit of another. And these people are using others up 
for their own temporary pleasures. That is the opposite of love. It says that they're multiplying their indulgences, fatness upon fatness. They're multiplying their carelessness, overflowing with follies. These are their actions. Verses 8 and 9 show their words. They scoff. They speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. And they set their mouths against the heavens. This is a great word picture. Their tongue struts through the earth. They live wickedly. And then they verbally shake their fist at God. And Asaph is ticked off about that. Think about this. Asaph is saying here, God, you see what these people are doing. You see how they're acting. You see the things they're saying. And what are you doing about it? And what right now is Asaph's answer? What's God doing about it? Nothing. He's letting them get away with it. In fact, their life is better than mine, Asaph says. Not fair. So Asaph cries foul on God. And to make matters worse, verse 10, Therefore, because God, you're failing to respond to this, therefore, his people, God's people, turn back to them, the wicked, and they find no fault in them. They find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Uh, Behold, these are the wicked. They're always at ease. And they increase in their riches. Asaph is saying the people of God see all of this that he has just laid out. And as a result, they turn from God. They follow the wicked. And Asaph blames himself, blames the people, and he blames God. God, this is your fault. And why is Asaph so upset about this? Think about Asaph's job. Asaph is serving as a prophet, as a religious leader. His job is to point people to the worship of God. And so what has happened to Asaph's ministry Do you see what's happening here? Asaph wants people to be listening to him and following his ministry. But they're not. Asaph has lost his crowd. And it burns him up. And God's to blame. Verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean. You have? (laughs) Has Asaph kept his heart clean? If this is the way he's seeing life, Asaph is saying, I've been good and look what I've gotten for it. He says, I washed my hands in innocence for all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. He says, I gave up my prosperity. I gave up my health. I gave up the good looks. I'm not fat and sleek. And I gave up my life of ease. And I did it to point people to you, God. And this is what I get. Verse 15, it seems like he's starting to turn. He says, if I had said, I will speak thus. If I had actually said out loud what I just shared with you, Lord. What my heart is thinking. Then I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So he acknowledges that this is wrong. But he's also very honest with God that this is where his heart is. 
And one of the greatest things about Scripture, and this is especially true, we find this in the Psalms, it's honest. The Word of God is very honest. There's a lot of really ugly things in the Bible. But none of those things that are ugly are God. And He always has an answer to the ugliness. He always gives hope to hopelessness. And He offers righteousness to the sinner. So who's the hero of the Bible? (laughs) It's not Daniel. It's not David. It's not Asaph. It's not Peter and Paul. Who's the hero of the Bible? God is. God is. Verse 16 says, But when I thought how to understand this, these thoughts in my heart about how life isn't fair and how the wicked are having a better life than me, it seemed to me a wearisome task. He's being honest here. He said it almost wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth doing this anymore. It wasn't worth thinking about this anymore. And he said early in verse 3, I almost stumbled. He'd almost fallen away from the path that God had for him. And then verse 17 is the key, key verse in this passage. Verse 17 says, Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. And so we need to think here as we continue on, what does that mean? Because we want to know what that means, right? Because have you ever thought the way Asaph was thinking here? We need to know what it means to go into the sanctuary of God. And we're going to see that as we continue along here. He says, then I discern their end. And here's the end. Verse 18, truly you set them, and all the thems here are, are the wicked. You set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself. When the time comes, realize here Asaph is giving God the keys to the timing of this, right? When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish. This is Asaph's confession. God, I was brutish, and I was ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Asaph experienced in this time envy, which caused stumbling and falling, and bitterness. And he compares it here to acting like an animal. And so we probably ought to say it like this, reacting like an animal. Right? Animals don't do a whole lot of planning and preparation. There's not a lot of forethought. But they'll react to a bunch of stuff. Those instincts kick in that God gave them, right? And Asaph is saying, I was acting like an animal. Just reacting to everything. And when you're bitter, what do your reactions look like? (laughs) They're not great. They're not great. They're not guided by God's good truth. Verse 23 says, Nevertheless, even though I am the way I am, even though I've been envious, even though I have uh, been bitter and acting like an animal, nevertheless, I am continually with you. This is the greatest prize, to be with Christ, 
to be with the Lord. And why are we continually with him? Was it because Asaph was saying, I was so awesome? Because I am so amazing, I'm with you. No, he said, nevertheless, right? In spite of myself, I'm continually with you. Because, this next line, you hold my right hand. God, in his goodness and in his grace, grabs a hold of our sinful hand. And then he promises in John 10 to never let go. Nothing will ever pluck you out of his hand. So why are we continually with God? Because he's got a hold of us. That's so amazing. Our salvation is not us figuring it out and grabbing a hold of God and never letting go. No, our salvation is God grabbing a hold of us and never letting us go. Praise God. He says in verse 24, You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. In these three lines, the second half of 23 and then all of 24, you hold me with your right hand, you guide me with your counsel, afterward you'll receive me to glory. We talked about this last week. What is our sanctification? Remember when when we put our faith in Christ, we're set apart. We're in Christ, like that's John 10. We are then growing progressively, being made to be more like Christ bit by bit. We're guided in his counsel. God does that through the ministry of the word of God and the Holy Spirit helping us to apply it to our lives and changing us and conforming us. And then when we see Christ face to face, 1 John 3, 2, we shall be made to be like him. We will see him face to face. Uh, our glorification. We're made to be like him. This is right here in the psalm. So verse 25 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing. What's the word there? Nothing on earth that I desire beside you. Nothing. My flesh and my heart, they may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Here Asaph is preaching to himself the truth. He's reorienting his mind and his heart. And as a result, his desires will change. That pattern is here in this verse. Verse 27 says, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, for me it is good to be near God. Think about this now, Christian. When is it good to be near God? Or maybe an easier answer at first is to say, when is it not good to be near God? Can God have fellowship with sin? And Asaph just said earlier here in the psalm what the end is of the wicked. So for the wicked, is it good to be near God? No. But by God's grace... By God's grace, he makes it so that it is good for us. Asaph remembers this and the truth of God's word and the truth of his relationship with him. For me, it is good to be near God. And I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Asaph took off the blinders of the horizontal. You know, you think you watch a horse race and the blinders are on the sides, right? They want to keep them from being able to see what's around them so they can focus on straight ahead. 
and run the race. Uh, Asaph's blinders were like this. <laughs> so what could he see? All the stuff around him. Uh, he had to take that blinder off because he was letting the things right here and the personal relationship he had with people, what he was seeing in mankind around him, he was allowing that to dictate how he viewed life. And what is the system that's around us? Is it good or is it messed up? Uh, it's messed up. And so if we let this speak to us, and let this be the source of our information and our wisdom and how we live life. It's going to mess us up. It's going to cast us aside. We're going to go astray. And he had to then go into the sanctuary of God. So a good way to think about that. We use the word horizontal. Okay, when we say horizontal, we're talking about what's here and now right in front of us on this earth. And we need to go vertical. Vertical means I'm thinking primarily about God. And so who gets to dictate how I view what? When I'm going vertical, God is the one who is my Lord. And so I see all of this through the grid of what he says about it. Does that make sense? Asaph had to go vertical. So he says, uh, the wicked, they have stuff. They have all of this temporary fleeting stuff. But I have God. I have God. He is my maker. He is my sustainer. He's given me himself, which is more than I could ever hope for. It's more than anything in this world could ever offer. It's better. Do we believe that? And so he says, God, I'm going to rest in you, not in stuff, not in money, not in looks, not in any of that kind of stuff. I'm going to trust in you and I'm going to look to you. And even if people refuse to listen to me, and even if people keep leaving you to follow the wicked, even if all that happens, it will still be my joy because I've put you first. It will still be my joy to keep telling everyone how wonderful you are. Do you see the motivation there? Asaph's motivation had to change. At first, it was like he would only have joy in sharing the message if everybody thought he was amazing. I love preaching the gospel as long as everybody thinks I'm great. As long as everybody follows me. As long as I get all the stuff. And as long as that was Asaph's mentality, life stunk. <laughs> but when he realized going into the sanctuary of God how wonderful he was and that he had a relationship with God, it didn't matter anymore how everybody thought about him. It didn't matter how many numbers he had coming through the turnstiles. He had God. And so it was wonderful to him. It was joyful. It was joyous for him to share the message for nothing other than the message itself and the maker who gave it. And how he was able to walk with the Lord in it. So remember, Christian, the lostness of the world should never keep us from sharing Christ. That sounds like a crazy thing to say, right? The lostness of the world should never keep us from sharing Christ. But sometimes we think that people are so far gone or something like that, that we can't share with them. But the reality is, the reason or the fact that they are so far gone 
is the very reason we must share Christ with them. Amen? Does that make sense? He is exactly what they need. We can't be motivated. We can't be motivated by people's opinions of us. Or by any kind of health or wealth that we might gain from doing this. From following God. It's the holiness of God, the glory of God, the goodness of God. These are the things that motivate us to speak of Him and to speak of our relationship with Him. If our hearts are being filled up with the riches of our relationship with Christ, we won't have to worry about speaking it. We won't be able to keep it from coming out of our mouths. Luke 6.45 says, Out of the overflow of the heart... The mouth speaks. So what do we find ourselves talking about the most? And whatever those things are, they come out of there for a reason. And that reason is that that's what's going on in here. And now I'm pointing to my heart. You know, the Bible doesn't mean like your heart that pumps blood through your body, right? The heart is the inner man. The things that are the most important to you are going to be the things that come out of here. And so when we're regularly going into the sanctuary of God, when God is the greatest thing to us, when he is what we value the most in our relationship with him, then that's what's going to come out of our mouth. And we won't even have to worry about trying to make sure that we speak of him, because it's just going to be what we do. It'll just come. So we know that the Asaph, because of how he was thinking and how he was feeling about life, We know that Asaph forgot to keep filling his heart up with the goodness of God for a time. We can learn and see that Asaph was not going to that living water, to that well that's eternally pouring up, flowing up into him. We can see that was happening, but it was for a time, and it was just in the first half of this psalm. And when he was looking away from God and towards the world's view of life, the pull of the world's values was strong. And the things that the world valued were things that he increasingly valued. Have you felt that pull? I have. Have you desired more wealth? Have you desired a greater reputation in society or in your workplace and wanted that success and seen what the Joneses have, and thought, man, that'd be nice. You've never done that, right? (laughs) Of course we have. Of course we have. We have to ask ourselves, are my values and my desires out of whack? Remember what our nation's resolutions, their values were. To lose weight, to look good, for more money, and to live life to the fullest. Define living life to the fullest outside of God. And what that means, what that would result in. If we pursue these things outside of God, or if we think that God exists to give us these things, if we think God exists to give us health and wealth and success. And Psalm 73 teaches us that that's going to trip us up. It's going to make us envious really quickly. It's going to embitter us. We're going to become bitter. And toward who? 
We might think, I'm going to be bitter towards my neighbors, and that may be somewhat true. But who will be, those who, of us who believe in God, who will we be bitter towards? God. If he's the giver of all good things, and if I define good things as temporary, earthly pleasures, he's not going to prove very wonderful to us. We won't be big fans of his, right? And ultimately, these things lead to the wicked's destruction. So we must, like Asaph, learn to regularly go into the sanctuary of God. We've got to go there. We've got to go there. So how? How do we do this? How many of you sang the song in Sunday school, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow? It's that easy, right? Well, not necessarily. Not necessarily that easy. How many of you have ever read the Bible before to check it off of your list of things to do for the day? How many of you have ever read your Bible before and closed it up and about five minutes later, if that long, you forgot what it said? How many of you have prayed and in the middle of your prayer started fixing all of your problems yourself? Just me? (laughs) I do that. I do that a lot. I'll start praying and I'll start thinking about a situation and, and giving it to the Lord and asking for his wisdom and guidance. And then I must think that I get his wisdom right then because I start thinking about how to fix it myself. <laughs> it's so easy to do those kinds of things. But listen, when we pray, we need to pray to go into the sanctuary of God. Realize that God is the sanctuary. Okay? This isn't a verse that just says, go to church and everything gets better. This is a, this is a verse that says, God is the sanctuary. You need to go into the sanctuary. That is God. And so when we pray, we need to pray going into the sanctuary of God. It's more than a task list to pass on. Uh, think about if you've heard of acts in prayer. The adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. You ever heard of that before? Adoration. If we're praying, thinking about how wonderful God is, in our prayers reciting His goodness, His power, His glory, We're thinking about who he is. We're setting up the sanctuary. If we're confessing, uh, wonderfully the Bible says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But you know, when you have a relationship with somebody, when does that relationship often get the deepest and the most love exchanged? When, When somebody knows everything about you and still loves you, that's pretty precious, isn't it? And we're to have a relationship with God. And he has no garbage to share with us. He's perfect. But we got some things to share. And when we do that, that deepens our relationship with him. Of course, thanking him. And if we've just confessed, we've got something to thank him for right then, don't we? For his forgiveness. And then we ask him for things. Sometimes prayer is just supplication. Prayer is just asking and getting. But there's so much more to it. As we build our relationship, as we go into the sanctuary of God with our prayer. And isn't it amazing as we think about who God is, just the fact that we could all pray, if we stopped right now and everybody just prayed themselves, God would not get a headache. He would, he would not need any aspirin or anything like that. He would know exactly what every one of us were saying. 
and he would know the answer to every single one of our thoughts and requests. Our God is that smart. (laughs) He knows everything all the time. Isn't that something else? We've got to be worshiping together as a church at the same time as many, many, many other churches in the eastern time zone of this nation. And Canada. (laughs) And South America. And God is not confused about any of it. How amazing is that? And he asks us to come and to pray and to talk to him. And then when we read, when we read our Bibles, let's go into our Bibles going into the sanctuary of God. It's our relationship with him. And we need to try on purpose, on purpose to learn about who he is, how great he is, how we can become more like Christ, how we can be pleasing to him. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, I make it my ambition, dead or alive, whether present here or absent with the Lord, to be pleasing to him. That was it. Life mission. To be pleasing to God. And where do we find that? In his word. We read our Bibles going into the sanctuary of God. And then let's talk about going to church. Is this a priority? Is this an amazing thing that we get to do this every week? To come together with other brothers and sisters in Christ who believe the same things that we do. To come together to get into his word. To hear from him. To, to worship him in our giving. To worship him in our singing. To have fellowship together. By the way, fellowship is just a fancy church word for relationship, right? That's all fellowship. When we're having a fellowship dinner, we're having food and talking with each other. We're building relationships. So we can say fellowship, that's fine. But that's what it means. It's relationship. Uh, This is our time and place where we do these things together and we stir one another up and remind each other to stay vertical. To keep ourselves in the right mindset, in the right frame of mind, so that God can tell us how to see all this stuff going on around us as opposed to all of this stuff telling us how to see God. When these kinds of things become less of a priority, church, prayer, the word of God, when these things become less of a priority, when we could say, you know, I could do without that. You know what I mean by that? There's some times when you just, you have the urge and you got to do it. And then there's times where maybe prayer or spending time in the word, you could do without it. It's not that big of a deal. If I miss it, I miss it. No big deal. When we're there in our minds, we have to ask ourselves the question, where have I begun to go to find sanctuary outside of God? Because if I'm going along through life just fine without him, something's wrong. And something else has become to us a sanctuary. And it might be going okay now, like the arrogant and the wicked, that had all those wonderful things, but it's not going to last long. It's not going to last long. And on this earth, what in the world, it's a good way to say it, what in the world can compete with God as a sanctuary for us? Let's think about how he stacks up. These are some verses that um, often I think of. You, you probably have this. When you're going through life and situations come up, and there's just a handful of verses that God has used over and over in your mind to help you to move forward and to take the next step. 
Uh, here's a couple of in my mind. Uh, Genesis 1-1. This is, by the way, next week. Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's really significant. We all know that verse. We can say it without even thinking about it, which is a danger to us. <laughs> How significant is it that God created the heavens and the earth? That's a verse that takes us into the sanctuary of God when we think about it. Isaiah 41.10. Uh, in a time in my life when I was super anxious, just struggling with fear and anxiety. Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. And I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who is Jesus Christ? God. God the Son. And then in my mind, I just skipped down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you skip down to the end of chapter 8, it gives all this list of all the things in this world that could come get you. So we'll just summarize that with nothing. Down to verse 39. Nothing will be able to separate us from the Love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I often think of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not as a result of works so that no one can boast. By the way, I'm not saying these word perfect. You realize that? Depending on what version you might have memorized it in too, but these are the verses, Okay. <laughs> Sometimes God gives it to us, but maybe one word out of order. Philippians 2.8, and being found in human form, this is Jesus, being found in human form, so he'd already humbled himself, and then he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even, not just death, but even death on a cross. Even death on the cross. And then Revelation, we've got to go to Revelation, right? Chapter 22, verses 12 and 13. Behold, Jesus says, I am coming someday. Soon. I am coming soon. Bringing my recompense with me. That's what Asaph was talking about. To repay each one for what he's done. And praise God for his glorious grace for us. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. These verses and more remind me. They remind us of who God is. Going into the Word of God to go into the sanctuary of God to remember who He is. And remember, if we're asking who He is, we know that God is eternal. He's eternal. He existed before the earth began. And think about this. In the beginning, God created, right? So, before eternity... Wait, what? Eternal? Before the earth was created, was there time? And so even to say before the earth, that, that doesn't even compute. Because there was no time. To think about the vastness of God and who he is. That Jesus could say in John eight fifty eight, Before Abraham was, I am. And they knew exactly what he was saying because they picked up stones. And that same Jesus could say, After the great white throne judgment, After the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, I am. 
am. He's eternal. He's eternal. Our God is omnipotent. He has all power. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He knows everything and he's everywhere all the time. Our God is glorious and he's holy. He's unlike anything else. And of course he is unlike anything else because he made everything else. So he's holy. He's our creator. And in his creation, Adam and Eve, how long did it take for them to sin against him and to be like Satan and say, I want to be like the Most High God? And what did God do? Did he wipe them off the face of the earth? Did he blow everything up and start over again? No, he graciously shed blood and made a covering for them. For their sin. This is who our God is. He made a covering for Adam and Eve, and he promised that there would be a seed of the woman who would crush the head of that serpent. That's Christ. He preserved when all of the earth became so wicked. He preserved mankind through Noah and his family. And then after that, he made a nation out of the seed of Abraham. Remember when God called Abraham out of Ur? What kind of people was Abraham hanging out with? He didn't get them from the First Baptist Church of Ur. They were all worshiping false pagan gods. So what do you think Abraham was busy doing? That's where he grew up. God graciously snagged him up out of those people, told and showed Abraham who he was, and said, I'm going to take you and I'm going to put you in this land. And I'm going to make a people from your seed from which all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then miraculously, God, through Abraham, brings Isaac, the son of promise, and and Jacob, and the twelve tribes in Israel, and Christ, Jesus Christ. And we know that Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life, never did anything wrong, never thought anything wrong. And that even though he was totally innocent, he died the death of a very guilty man. And remember that he didn't get killed. It says that he gave himself willingly. And he gave up the ghost. He gave his life on the cross. And he took all of the wrath that we deserve for our sin on himself. And remember that he's God the Son. How did God make amends for our sin? By taking it on himself. So that we could have life. So that we could be adopted and become his children and have forgiveness and have eternal life ourselves with him, our greatest prize. And Jesus did not stay in the grave. But on the third day, he rose from the dead. He defeated death. And nobody else had to do anything to get him to raise. He did it. And then he ascended into heaven. He gave us the Spirit, and He promised He's coming again. This is our God. This is who we worship. This is who we serve. Now listen, I love watching football as much as the next guy. Okay? And I enjoy having a cushion in the bank bank account as much as anybody else. And it's always nice to know that people like you, isn't it? Much better than knowing people hate your guts. Would you agree with those kinds of things? But how could any of those things, how could any of those things compare 
to knowing and loving God. Football doesn't compare. Hunting doesn't compare. Shopping doesn't compare. Anything that we do that we might go to sanctuary for, think, oh, if I could just do this, if I could just have this, this place beats any man cave, (laughs) doesn't it? Because we go into the sanctuary of God together here. How could anything else compare? Why would I ever seek sanctuary anywhere else? He is our only true sanctuary. God is our only true joy. And He is the only way we could have any full life. He is our fullest life. Nothing will make us happy outside of Him. Outside of Him. Paul shared this in in Philippians 3 and Philippians 4. Paul's hunger for all the things this world has to offer pushed him in to studying and learning and growing within Judaism at the time and and to the point where he became a Pharisee. And he was an up-and-coming Pharisee, the young guy that was just storming in. And his, his burden and passion to persecute the church was hot. And so he was a rising star. And when God intervened and interfered and redeemed him, changed everything. And remember in Philippians 3, it says that he counted all those old things in his old life, back in his B.C. days before Christ, he counted that all as waste, rubbish. That's how he thought about that old life. And he counted knowing Christ as surpassing all of those things, so that even in chains, even in hunger, even in poverty, even in persecution, Paul had found a way in all of these circumstances to be content, to have joy. That's why it says in Philippians 4, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ. Paul was talking about being in chains and being in poverty and being in persecution. I can do all these things in Christ who strengthens me. And Asaph says in the same way, even as it seems like his crowds were dwindling, Asaph was able to say at the end of Psalm 73, truly it is good, God is good to those who are pure in heart. And it is good for me to be near God. So church, let's resolve to regularly be going into the sanctuary of God. We know God is good. We know God is faithful. And the more we do this, the more wonderful it will be to us. And the more we'll want to be in the sanctuary of God. And we'll delight in being together with him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for being good. We thank you for being good to us. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to see when we define your goodness to us in a worldly, fleshly, temporal way. God, help us to see that. God, may we as a church and each individual here uh, grow in our delight in who you are and in our delight in being with you. God, may we gladly go into your sanctuary and find you to be wonderful. 
And God, we praise you and thank you because we know that's going to change our lives. It's going to bring you glory. And that's what we want to be. And that's what we want to do. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.